0: This is the ACR 2023 daily podcast. Here you'll listen to faculty recordings, discussions, and interviews taken from the ACR Convergence meeting in San Diego. I hope you enjoy this recording. Hey, good afternoon. We are here at ACR 23 in San Diego I'm joined by a good friend and master hey, of rheumatology <laughs> and infectious disease, Dr. Kevin Winthrop from Oregon Health Science Center in Portland. Uh, Kevin uh, is always active at these meetings, always teaching us. I know that you, you have a bunch of sessions and whatnot. I wanted to corner you on things that rheumatologists are concerned about. Sure. And, uh, and, and in, in the aftermath of COVID, um, are we still concerned about COVID? So there are reports yeah. that happened right after COVID and now about, the vaccine itself causing autoimmune disease. What's your take on that? Uh, well, I think I told you
1: about my experience with uh, gout, right? <laughs> I got my vaccine. Uh, my toe kind of hurt. This is my first vaccine, and then the next day I had the biggest gout attack uh, ever—or my my first one—and uh, it was quite impressive. So there, there's no question. There's a innate and other, uh, you know, parts of your immune system are are uh, stimulated with these vaccines. So. I, I think it makes sense that someone who has an underlying uh, inflammatory condition or maybe an incipient one could could see a flare or something like that. I will say that most of the most of that type of information is in the form of case reports or case series. Right. Uh, there are some population-based data looks at those questions where where generally you don't really see an increased risk of. Uh, you know, new onset autoimmune disease um, or even flares of autoimmune disease. But again, I, I do believe it happens. I, I mean, I guess it happened to me with my gout. But I, I do think there's, there's enough case reports that you do, you do see something like that. Um, I mean, certainly even with the vaccine uh, or with natural infection, rather, right. you see similar reports. Right. You see, you know, increased risk of seizures, diabetes. I mean, there's all these very small increased risks that you see with natural infection. I don't think it would be um, unusual to see something similar with with a fake infection, a vaccine. Right, right. So to trigger some similar type of adverse events, uh, albeit in a much lower risk than the natural infection. I mean, and that's usually what we're trying to do, prevent so, these things.
0: So I've seen uh, a lot of good reports about the biology, what what the the spike protein is doing, and, and for that matter, maybe even the vaccine. And it, it is does excite the innate response. It does yeah, activate the absolutely. inflammasome, yeah. and 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 that might, as you say, might be the trigger to start the fire and goes to that old theory that I think we had as as we were medical students that you know infection can make immune disease worse, and yeah. and just by the evil humors that it produces. So it's not surprising that vaccination would lead to more events. What do you think about the concept of of actual infection leading to a, a, a surge in autoimmune disease. My take on that is that I think that during the COVID pandemic, nobody got seen. And after the COVID pandemic, everybody's back to being seen. So is is this enhanced? Uh, surveillance maybe that's picking up more cases that shows up in these reports but i don't, I, I personally don't think i'm seeing more autoimmune disease because of, of covid
1: yeah so you know the onset of new autoimmune disease like i said the the population-based looks i've seen at that with both natural infection and vaccine you know haven't really shown any right. increased risk um but uh, boy, I mean, it, it doesn't preclude the idea that it happens on an individual, you know, case by case basis, which sometimes, you know, you don't see something in a big population based study, but you might have individual cases where that's the issue. I mean, certainly we know infection in general can trigger autoimmune diseases. I mean, this is well established. Uh, so, I, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if it does occur for some people
0: so. all right so lastly um you know we're now on the tail end the back end a different phase of a, what's going to be a long-lasting infection called covid19 um and we obviously said early on get the vaccine that's going to be important in your patients yeah. surprisingly the patients with autoimmune disease did pretty well in spite of getting infected and whatnot and the vaccination clearly seemed to work yeah but now most people of the opinion this uh you know, the next phase of COVID is the is the new cold and nothing more. Yeah. Is it worth autoimmune patients getting the vaccine, the new the the, the, the next iteration? I just got it before I came to the meeting. Yeah, me too. I just got mine. And no no gout this yeah. time.
1: No gout. Yeah. I, I went I actually got the different vaccine. I got the Novavax vaccine. Oh yeah. Really? Protein adjuvenated vaccine that's different from the mRNA vaccine. The reason I did that is I think they all work similarly. Um, and they all have similar safety profiles, but I've been, the last mRNA vaccine I got here, I had, like, really impressive uh, lymphadenopathy in really? my armpit for, yeah, here I am with all these problems, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I decided I was, yeah, was going to get a different vaccine this time. It worked out fine. So, I mean, I think for people who've had difficulty with mRNA vaccines before, that's, a, that's right, an right. option. Right. Um, but, but I think they're all good vaccines, and your question is really good, and, and it kind of goes back to something you said, too, a minute mm-hmm. ago. Um, the, it's hard to study the, both the effectiveness of the vaccines as well as uh, safety or kind of this question of new autoimmune disease, et cetera, because people have multiple exposures at this point, both through natural infection and through vaccines. So some of the people have you know, two, three COVID experiences, and then they've had two or three vaccines. You know, They've had six, seven, eight exposures at this point. So it makes it complicated to study some of these questions that you're asking. Right, right. That being said, it makes it raises the question you just asked: like, is it worth getting another vaccine? Um, and uh, to be honest, I think for a lot of people who are younger or not, you know, don't have risk factors, they've already been exposed four or five times. I, I don't know that you're gaining much with an additional vaccine at this point, other than. You know the short-term three-month, uh, you know, increase in your neutralizing titers, and then they go back down to where they were, you know, three or four months ago. So, um, so there may not be a lot of benefit for for those types of people. Now, I think for your patients, uh, it depends who they are. I mean, certainly subsets of them have not either had. I, I mean, I have patients who haven't had COVID before. It's hard to believe. I, me neither. I've not, and yeah. I've tested many times. Again, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, it, it, it's there are those people out there, so they are more naive that way um, immunologically. And I think also there are patients that, you know, have had suboptimal exposure to the vaccine, or suboptimal responses to the vaccine. I mean, we know that B-cell depletion therapy, I mean, there's, there's other people on TAC and MMF. I mean, there's groups of people that are out there that just probably are, are under underprotected. And so, I mean, for those people... If we had a monoclonal preventive antibody, which hopefully we'll have soon, that's that would be a good option. And for those people, also, I think booster is a good option, too. Now, the frequency of those boosters, I don't know. I mean, we've kind of slipped into this idea of annual boosters for the general population, right. which I, you know, myself and I, I have a lot of colleagues, I'm not sure, a lot of us don't think that's necessarily the right, right. answer. Um, for subsets of people who are immunosuppressed, who had prior. Problems mounting responses. Maybe maybe that is the answer at least temporarily. Right. Um, but you know you can't vaccinate someone every three months or every six months. I mean this right. is. And, and if you look at the data, the longer you wait between the vaccines, the better they work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So you know I I know CDC says you know oh, if it was two months ago you can get your vaccine, but I mean that's a little early. Right. Like and the I, data is weak yeah, at best. I would wait so. six to twelve months. I mean if I was immunosuppressed things like that. So. Um. Anyway, I, I think they had the long answer, it was way too long an answer, the, is to your question, yes, there are subgroups of people that should continue to be vaccinated, but we probably don't need to vaccinate at such short intervals.
0: Right. So uh, it is, I mean, what what do vaccines do? They reduce the risk. This is, a, this is you're playing the odds. And, yeah. and in high-risk patients, the, the, that seems like it's a it's a worthwhile thing. I think that we know who our low-risk patients are and that we can be more conservative with them but i think this is very helpful advice so kevin always wonderful yeah let's, hey, do, let's uh, do it again next year co-
1: come to our uh, thing tomorrow len calvarez oh, yeah? and i and cassie and al kim and there's a session on what? uh several other people yeah it's a uh, cme you know vindico cme on covid uh, where we are today uh, with vaccine, monoclonal antibody development, and, and kind of what the future holds that
0: way. So oh, good. Yeah. Power, a Powerhouse and, and uh, faculty. Our
1: yeah, yeah. we got some good There's good stuff in the pipeline, right. so I think it'll be even more of a cold for people in the future. So, All right. Excellent. Yeah. That'll be
0: Tuesday afternoon. Yeah. You got All it. Right. Yeah. Thank you. All right. You. Be there. Cool.
3: Hi everyone, this is Aurélie Neige from Glasgow. I'm super happy to be here with you today, day two of ACR in San Diego. Um, There is a presentation that I wanted to bring to you um, because I think it's really interesting. It's been looking at whether the way we deliver TNF inhibitors is actually good. Is actually good enough or could it be better? Um, And so what it was, it was abstract 0838, and so what the authors did is they took a cohort of patients treated with a tannercept and they would not respond to a tannercept after 3 months. It was only 10 patients uncontrolled studies, so obviously you know um, we, we have to keep that in mind but so 10 patients and instead of giving them subcutaneous tannercept they decided to deliver this in a way that it would um be delivered to the lymph to the lymph nodes and through lymphatic channels and so the way they did that is they developed this this technique I have to read this it's nanotopography microneedles. so it's wearing, it's wearing like a, like a bracelet basically uh, like a wristband and that delivers a countercept straight into the joint draining lymphatic so obviously it's it's mainly if it's the wrist it was mainly focused on the on the arm, and you know that that is obviously open for discussion. Whether you know it should be targeting other you know joints as well, but what they found in this trial, obviously there was no placebo, either it wasn't controlled, but is that these patients that were inadequately responding to etanercept after three months and, and and therefore had a really high DAS, could reduce their DAS by um, two points. On average which is actually really good Um, and 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 the patient's global kind of dropped up to 77 percent again in in most of the patients at week 12 Um, and when it comes to safety really it was pretty good I mean obviously some patients did have um, erythema uh, because it's microneedle so you can imagine that it's probably um, a bit difficult for the skin but it just made me reflect on you know (laughs) Maybe the drugs work, but the way we deliver is not great. And, and so, obviously, I think this is really something to follow. I would be really, really keen to see a placebo controlled trial um, for this technique. And so, stay tuned. Go on ramnat.com for more content and follow me on Twitter at OeliRemo. Thank you.
2: I'm Anthony Chan. I'm from London, United Kingdom, reporting here at ACR 23 in San Diego for Rundown. Today we have uh, listened to some very nice presentations here at the conference and I want to focus today on the issue of uh, radiographic progression and also the use of MRI in imaging in the area of axial spondyloarthritis. Firstly, there was a poster presentation today, uh, 1389. And this is from a Spanish uh, group who looked at their Spanish uh, registry And these were patients diagnosed with axial spondyloarthritis who were biologic naive at the start of the uh, recruitment and they followed them up for uh, 15 years. And what they wanted to know is what were the factors that predicted uh, radiographic progression. And roughly half of them were what we call fast progressors and another half were slow progressors. When they looked into the details of this, uh, some of the factors that we probably in the past would have considered as important Factors for fast progression such as male gender, the presence of baseline radiographic change, uh, high inflammatory markers, these were not uh, seen as to be strong factors in this study, uh, giving us insight into maybe there are other factors that may drive the radiographic progression. But they did find that the presence of preceding back pain prior to the diagnosis was one of the strongest factors for the radiographic progression. The other aspect from this study was that the rate of progression was much lower than what we have come to understand using what we call the Modified Stoke Ankylosing Spondylitis Score or MSAS. In general, our understanding is there should be about a two-unit change over a period of two years in patients with Axial SPA. In this study, this was much lower and the median was about 0.5 uh, in, 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 the, uh, in the study and this is much lower than what we have known to be in the past. So I think this opens up for us to understand that there are inherent characteristics about the patients that we study uh, that may predict either they are fast progressors or slow progressors, and from there we should individualize their treatment uh, in order to prevent the radiographic progression. The second study was uh, was uh, poster number 1398, and with the increase of the use of uh, radiograph uh, re- use of MRI in terms of diagnosing axial SPA. There's also the issue about standardization of the reporting, and also the accuracy of the reporting. And one of the things that they have done is that they've used deep neural network, sort of machine learning type uh, algorithms, to try to analyze the MRI scans, where they looked over a huge number of scans, and they found that the, this was uh, very accurate. Uh, uh, in the area of the curve, uh, was about 09 uh, and this is close to what we would expect from a general radiologist. If, in terms of going forward, clearly more studies would need to be done uh, in terms of the use of uh, such uh, AI-type techniques, deep neural network methods, to try to detect the presence of inflammation around the sacroiliac joint in MRIs. But what could be useful here are two things. Firstly, with the shortage of skilled uh, radiologists, particular musculoskeletal radiologists, who are trained to look at these scans. This could be another way of trying to uh, standardise the reporting of uh, patients with suspected exospa across many centres. Secondly, I think the use would be in research, where we have often have to have uh, readers to validate the, uh, the radiographic uh, findings in order for patients to be entered into clinical trials or for the, for the end point in terms of the outcome. Again, I think uh, such deep neural network technologies could be deployed in order to standardize some of the reporting that we see uh, in the field of exospar where the MRI is very much the cornerstone of both the diagnosis, the management, and the follow-up of our patients. So I think two, two important studies here uh, from ACR23 today, which I hope uh, will uh, help us to understand and how we use and also um, manage our patients better uh, with the condition. Thank you.
4: Hi everyone, Professor Peter Nash here, School of Medicine, Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane, reporting for Room Now, ACR Convergence in San Diego. We're going to talk about a couple of abstracts, 0514 and 0538, which are looking at difficult to treat axial spondyloarthropathy. We'll talk later about difficult to treat psoriatic arthritis, and you know there's been a strong movement to define difficult to treat RA, so this is following along those lines. The first abstract comes from a French group and they're trying to define difficult to treat Axial Spar and they looked at a large French database and they found 23,000 AxPAR patients of which about a half had taken a biologic or a targeted synthetic DMARD. Now they followed those patients and they defined difficult to treat as having failed three biologic or targeted synthetic demands or failing two that were of a different mechanism of action. So when they looked through this massive database to see which patients fitted that definition that they came up with, and you can argue whether it's reasonable or not reasonable, they found almost 10% across the board would be classified as a difficult-to-treat AXPAR and they found if they looked in the patients that already failed a biologic or a targeted synthetic, you're talking about 20% of that population, one in five considered difficult to treat. So what were the factors that were um, predictors of being difficult to treat? Female gender, peripheral arthritis and peripheral symptoms, the presence of psoriasis and then things like depression, hypertension and smokers when you compared not difficult to treat with difficult to treat. Now this database has nothing about disease activity in it, which is one of its biggest limitations of this particular study. So the bottom line is, according to this definition, difficult to treat AXPAR is really quite common and the question is what is the implication? What are we going to do about it? And so we turn to the next abstract, which is 0538, which is a Spanish cohort of real-world patients, 101 of them, who were about to start a biologic DMARD for AXPAR, and these people had already failed a couple of biologics or targeted synthetics, and their definition of a good response was staying on the same drug for three years. And they found 42% of their patients had difficult to treat AXPAR. And the predictive factors, B27 negative, smokers again, relatively short symptom duration, having IBD or other comorbidities or emphysitis. And they found that a six month time point was a very good point to predict outcome, who was gonna do well and who was gonna be difficult. So what does all this mean? What are we going to do about these patients who are difficult to treat? We better stop them smoking, we better treat the peripheral comorbidities, and we better pay attention to the enthesitis, to the depression, the hypertension, etc. But really, if we can identify this group early, are they a group that needs more aggressive therapy at the beginning? Do they need combinations? and then you can simplify the regime with maintenance. So if you can identify the bad prognostic group early, maybe we'll treat them more aggressively, maybe we'll treat them differently, but at least we can work on these peripheral factors and do something about them. Identify the difficult to treat early, like at month six, and do something about limiting their difficulties over time. So that's all from now, and thank you for your attention.
5: Hi, this is Dr. Catherine Dow. I'm in San Diego at the American College of Rheumatology Conference 2023. And I have with me um, Jun Chu, and she's from the NIH. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So I was very captivated by your abstract which um, was presented at this meeting, and it has to do with the use of gonadotropin agonists in order to preserve fertility. Could you tell me a little bit about what got you interested in this
6: field and what the abstract shows? Absolutely. So what, you know, what prompted this study is really because uh, there's very limited data on the use of GnRHA, or gonadotropin-releasing hormone Agnes for ovarian preservation um, for you know female patients receiving cytoxin, and there was uh, conflicting recommendations from us and our OBGYN cohort. We were referring all our patients over to them to get Lupron, prior to giving IV cytoxin, and they were coming back saying, I don't know if this really does anything. So we first started a meta-analysis, and um, we looked at all the rheumatic patients receiving IV cytoxin and uh, Lupron, and we found that Lupron does help with um, ovarian preservation in our meta-analysis, which we published. And then after meta-analysis, we ended up looking at our own uh, lupus cohort. So we did a retrospective study, and that's what this abstract uh, really uh, tells us is the retrospective study that we did. And it includes um, a chart review and a questionnaire of 100 patients. Um, so one group of the patient only had cytoxin. Um, group two had cytoxin and GnRHA, and group three were just controls. Um, and we did a chart review in terms of looking at their demographic, demographic info, information, their disease accrual, um, disease activity, and also how much cumulative cytoxin dose that they received. Um, after we looked at all of that, we also looked at, um, we also sent out the patients a questionnaire, which asked them questions about, you know, how much, um, in terms of their fertility status, um, Pre impose cytoxin exposure, length of menses, regularity, um, infertility, and also um, pregnancy outcome. And what we found was that in group one, which is cytoxin only, there was a higher risk of um, premature ovarian insufficiency, which we measured or defined as uh, menopause before the age of 40. So it was 37% compared to group two, which had cytoxin plus GnRHA, which was only at 20% compared to the control group, which were only lupus patients with no cytoxin exposure. In addition to that, we found that length of menses for both group one, cytoxin only, and group two cytoxin plus GnRHA, length of menses decrease pre and post cytoxin exposure. So this is very pre- preliminary data. There's only about 100 um, subjects. Um, and uh, I did not mention earlier, but in the demographics, the patients who were in group one were a little bit older compared to the patients in group two, which um, also, you know, when they're exposed to cytoxin at an older age, there's, you know, more damage. And also because the group two is a little bit younger, about 12 of them have not turned so we need to go back and finish collecting data. So it's preliminary, we need to finish collecting data and hopefully to expand the the group and then also collect information such as AMH levels, FSH, esterol, so we need to do more work but currently our preliminary data does show that um, giving GNRHA concurrently with cytoxin helps with ovarian preservation which supports our meta-analysis that we did.
5: No, that's that's awesome. And when she says older, it's not that much older. It's not my age, actually. It's like 27 years old versus 24 years old. So it's not like you know people who are like in their mid 30s or even 40s. No, these are still young young ladies, really. I am um, so glad you did the study. And the reason why is because recently I had a patient that I saw, I've been trying to get her a gonadotropin agonist with her cyclophosphamide, she has lupus nephritis, she wanted to have babies and she was like 25, 26. They refuse. they just won't pay for that. And you know, this is gonna give us more data um, so that way we might be able to get insurance to approve this, I know, you know, They would like to have something, like, FDA-approved, and that way they would allow us to use it. But the reality is to to get something FDA-approved is kind of tough when we know that there's, like, nice meta-analysis, nice little data like this. So, what's your future plans? You're, you said that you were gonna do more of a validation study, AMH and... Right, exactly,
6: expand the cohort, finish collecting data, um, and then hopefully, you know, come up with a manuscript from this protocol. Um, and then the other thing we wanted to look into is best practice use for Lupron, because right now, Lupron is not um, recommended for after one year of use, and sometimes we're giving cytoxin, you know, especially in an NIH protocol, maybe over one year, and there's you know, irreversible bone damage that can happen. So we're also looking at best practice use for Lubron, since we're recommending it.
5: That's amazing. Well, thank you so much, June. Thank I really you. appreciate our viewers watching us. Follow me on Twitter at KDAO2011. Thank you.
7: Hi, my name is Chika Singla from the Medical College of Wisconsin, and I'm reporting from ACR 2023 about this abstract number 0532 and it's about factors associated with cost-specific discontinuation of long-term anti-TNF use in patients with ankylosing spondylitis. So uh, they analyzed ankylosing spondylitis patients who initiated anti-TNFs and uh, as their first line between 2004 to 2018 and continued treatment for at least two years. Uh, Their index date was first prescription of their TNF inhibitor. Followed patients until they discontinued or till September 2022. Uh, they analyzed 429 ankylosing spondylitis patients, um, and uh, they excluded patients who had IBD. The median survival of first-line agent was 10.6 years, and 24% of them discontinued the first-line agent. 34% due to inefficacy. due to sustained remission, and 15% due to adverse events. Um, There was higher baseline uh, BASTI and infliximab use were were associated with higher likelihood of discontinuation um, due to inefficacy. But older age uh, was associated with increased risk of uh, discontinuation due to adverse effects. Um, but, uh, so I, I thought this study was interesting because uh, it kind of helps us to make our decision, um, uh, customize our decision based on patient profiles. Thank you. Hi,
8: I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from ACR 2023 in San Diego, coming to you from RoomNow.com. And I have the privilege of interviewing my friend, who's been my friend for a long time, Dr. Hillary Norton, She is a very accomplished rheumatologist, researcher, and patient who practices in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And um, thank you, Hillary, for agreeing to do this interview with me.
9: Thank you for having me. (laughs) I appreciate (laughs) it.
8: Tell me a little bit, and, and share with our viewers, if you don't mind, tell me about your personal experience with ankylosing spondylitis.
9: Sure, sure. Well, it's no secret that I was eventually diagnosed with AS as an intern first month of intern year in the ICU so no stress there right
8: (laughs) no stress
9: (laughs) but you know that was following 10 years of issues with back pain and uveitis and misdiagnoses and so um, you know I get that delay and what it really feels like what that journey really feels like and then you know like many patients I was hesitant to start treatment for a variety of reasons. Um, I really get what patients are thinking on so many levels based with you know going to a, a big medication. So I know a little bit about the natural history of this disease and, and what happens when you're not treated. But I think that really helps me to understand what that patient is going through when we're having these discussions.
8: So did your experience play a part into why you chose rheumatology? Oh,
6: absolutely.
8: I mean, <laughs> I mean, you're fabulous because of this experience alone, but what you provide to patients. So tell me a little bit about that.
9: Well, it was on my radar, but you know, then I just spent all of my time reading about rheumatology. So you know, my whole intern year—that's basically what I was doing when I wasn't studying other things. So it just made sense, right?
8: <laughs> it was a natural fit, right? Were you interested in clinical research and like the the nature of your your um, job search for your employment, your career?
9: Yeah, you know, it's funny, private practice and clinical research was not on my radar when I finished fellowship at all and through a series of interesting events, I <laughs> hit the ground running. I started my own private practice right out of fellowship. <clears throat> and it's evolved over the years. So it's evolved. We now have a robust clinical trial program, which is so exciting for our patients, really. so
8: I love it. But outside of clinical research and private practice, you do a lot for advocacy. So tell me a little bit about that.
9: Yeah, you know, I see a lot of patients who come to me, as we all do probably for second opinions who have had experiences that they're less than happy with, and I get that. I mean, I get, uh, we're, we're burned out. Our jobs are hard, right? Yeah. We work really hard. So I understand that, that sometimes they want a little bit different fit. But the stories I hear really consistently when, when I meet new patients are, Thank you for listening. Nobody's ever listened to me before. And I think it's been very humbling as the years have gone on in my own practice. I realized that you know, we have our agenda. We want to treat a target. We want to get certain outcomes for the patient. We want to do the very best for them. But these diseases present in such a heterogeneous way and sometimes simply listening and validating what people are going through and then providing them with information to make informed decisions as opposed to trying to make decisions for them really goes a long way. So I think I've sort of settled a little bit and I will give them time to think and you know, to just really participate in their health.
8: So you develop relationships
9: with your patients? (laughs) No, I don't. I know that's what we we hope to. Rheumatology. Yeah, I think I think we're all really good at that, but um, it's a process. I'm constantly learning and and hopefully getting better, but it's a process.
8: Well, you provide the color to the context, right? To everything that they're experiencing, and because of a shared experience, even though it may be different, it does provide. almost like a common ground yes. to be able to start a conversation yes. and the understanding and the um, maybe the empathy and the sensitivity that it takes to practice rheumatology in 2023 and beyond. Yes. So um, what's next? What's on the radar for Dr. Norton?
9: Well, we're growing the clinical trial program, so that's very exciting. We moved to a new building, but our practice is really focusing a lot more on wellness right now. So we're bringing in some new wellness options. That's what patients want. Um, we're going to start some interesting things around walking and nutrition. Um, th- these are things that patients have been asking for. So.
8: That's awesome. Well, I'll come walk with this doc any day. So I would you. love that. I would, too. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Hillary. You are thank you just a so. delight. And honestly, um, for this and other updates around ACR 2023, check out RoomNow.com. And of course, follow Dr. Hillary Norton and myself on Twitter.